Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you're thinking about buying an electric vehicle, or you're simply curious about the technology, this is the episode for you. And stick around after the interview. We've got more disturbing news about Tyson Foods. If you're like me, something as simple as shopping at the grocery store can be difficult. As I peruse the aisles, I try my best to be an environmentally conscious consumer. But the best options are not always so clear. Are organic apples better than conventional? What about if they're flown in from New Zealand? So when I was in the market for an electric vehicle, I was overwhelmed with questions and curiosities. The technology is certainly cool, but I want to understand it so I can choose the best option for my needs. In an effort to become a more savvy and educated buyer, I began jotting down all of my questions and reached out to my friend and colleague, EV expert Dave Reichmuth, a senior engineer here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He helped me talk through everything you might like to know about electric vehicles, which you'll hear us call EVs so we don't have to keep saying the full phrase 100 times. If you've ever wanted to know more about EVs, keep listening as we discuss how the technology works and how to be a more environmentally conscious consumer and driver. David, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Colleen. It's great to be back. So, you know, I didn't imagine you'd be back so soon after our conversation about the Ford F-150 Lightning EV pickup truck. But I just purchased an electric vehicle, and you really helped me out by answering a lot of questions. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to share that info with our listeners? So I want to start with the basic questions you posed to me when I was thinking about an EV. So what do you like people to consider when they're thinking about buying an EV? Yeah, so there's a few questions that would be great for people to think about when they're looking at buying an EV. You know, the first question is sort of this threshold question. Of, well, do you really need a car or do you need to replace that car with another car? Or can you replace it with a bike or walking or public transit or a mix? Because that's going to be a lot less emissions. It's also going to be a lot cheaper to do that. But, you know, for a lot of us, there are things we need a car for. And if you do need a car, then I think another question is how much car do you need? How big does that car have to be? How What capabilities does it need to have? If it's just going to be you going back and forth to work by yourself, you probably don't need a, a full-size pickup truck or SUV. You know, some of us do need a seven-passenger minivan or, or SUV, but that's not the case for everyone. And if you right-size your, your vehicle choice to your mobility needs, that's going to be, again, fewer emissions and also will will likely save you money both on fuel and, and the purchase of the vehicle. And I guess the last thing to think about is that if you're looking at an EV, well, so do you have a place to plug it in? And do you have, if you have off-street parking where you can plug in at least a standard three-prong outlet or somewhere where you can bring in more power, that's also something to consider if you're going to an EV. And if you don't have those things, where are charging stations around you and, and what's the access to those? So I think those are a few of the threshold questions when you're considering getting a new vehicle or replacing a vehicle with an EV. So now that those are the questions I think that I pose to you, did you take my advice? Did you look at those factors? And what did you decide? Why, why yes, David, I did. <laughs> I did take your advice. I'll, I'll give you a quick recap. So we had two hybrid cars, an old, I had a 2007 Prius, and we also have a newer RAV4. 
So our plan was to go to one car when the Prius died, but we just installed solar panels and decided that it made sense to get an EV now. So our plan is to use the EV for all of the main driving, going to a supermarket, doctor's appointments, etc. And well, let, let me also mention that uh, we don't live near public transit or within walking distance to stores, so we really have to have a car. So our plan now is to use the electric vehicle for the bulk of all of our you know daily driving that we need to do. And then use the RAV4 if, you know, we're driving to Vermont for a weekend or something like that. So uh, I think you'll be happy to know that I did forego the the Ford Lightning because I am not hauling timber. I just need to do my local stuff. But, you know, one thing that struck me was I had very little choice in what EV to buy. There was exactly one car available in my price range in eastern Massachusetts, and it was actually more than I wanted to pay. So my next question to you is not a technical question, but why are there so few choices, specifically in the less expensive models? Yeah, that's a great question. Right now, there's a lot of hopefully short-term disruptions in, in the automotive industry. So we are seeing the effects of the supply constraints on computer chips and other materials. And just across the board, whether it's EVs or gasoline vehicles, we're seeing automakers focus some of the scarce resources into, into the higher priced models and, and luxury models. And so that's that's part of it. I think we're also seeing on the EV space with this new technology that automakers are tending to bundle a lot of cutting edge features, a lot of technology that that's not re- necessarily related to being an EV. You know, so big sp- display screens or the highest levels of of automation uh, for the vehicle, and all of these options increase the cost of the car. And it's not really related to the, being an EV, but they're tending to bundle those higher cost packages together with the EV technology. So on the plus side is that there is a federal tax credit that reduces the cost up to $7,500, depending on the vehicle, that is available for most vehicles. It's not available for the Tesla and the General Motors vehicles because they've hit their cap. And this may change if the Build Back Better legislation passes. And there also are state and, and local incentives also available, depending on where in the country you are, that help bring the cost down to uh something that's that's similar to the gasoline vehicles. So when we were shopping around, I found the fuel economy sticker confusing and wasn't sure how relevant that was to electric vehicles. So I'm wondering, what is the most important measurement to look at when you're comparing an EV to an EV? Yeah. So you can look at fueleconomy.gov has a MPGE rating. And in that case, you know, higher MPGE is, is, is more efficient and better. Some auto manufacturers also talk about miles per kilowatt hour. That's also more miles is more efficient. That's better. You know, I just, just want to emphasize though, is that you, know, you do, you know, you should factor that in that a more efficient EV is going to use less electricity. So it's going to be cheaper to run. It's going to have lower carbon emissions because it's using less electricity. But the gains you get in terms of cost savings and emission savings, it's a wide gap between gasoline vehicles and electric vehicles. So just making that switch, you're going to get a lot of benefits. And then within the electric vehicles, yes, if you can pick a more efficient one and it's within your budget and it meets your needs, that's great. But you don't want to stress out about that too much especially because a lot of the EVs have a very similar efficiency. Let's talk about charging, because there are several questions that will help our listeners when they're 
thinking about an EV and shopping for an EV. And also for those who are worried about finding a charging station or running out of power, can you just run through what the options are for charging your EV? Yeah, there's a lot of charging options out there. It can get kind of confusing, but let's just break, try to break it down to the the, the basics. And you know, this will depend a, a bit on the specific vehicles, and so I, I can't really talk to every different EV out there. But let's just talk big picture. So first, every EV out there comes with a charger that will plug into a, a three-prong outlet. So as long as that three-prong outlet has the capability to, say, run something like a, an electric space heater, it's also going to be able to charge the car. So if you have a garage and you have a basic outlet, you're going to be able to get some charge. Now, the downside of that basic outlet is that you're going to get, well, about four miles per hour of range added. So say 40 miles in a 10-hour in a charging station session, sorry. And for a plug-in hybrid, which might only have a range of 35 or 40 miles, that's great. You're, you're done. You, that's all you really need is a basic outlet in a garage or an outdoor outlet near a driveway. If you have a battery electric vehicle and you're going to be driving longer distances, you're probably going to want to have a bit more power. And so there you need a, a higher powered circuit. So this is the kind of circuit you would have for an electric clothes dryer. And, you know, some people might have that in or near their garage already, which would be great. And then if your electric panel is near your garage or even in your garage, you know, it, it might be fairly straightforward to add a circuit that goes to an electric car charger. And the home charger is going to that home charger that runs off the 220-240 volt circuit is going to get you somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, say, 20 miles per hour added. So now you're talking maybe 200 miles in a 10-hour charging session. So those are the home options. And that's not maybe going to work for everyone, but a lot of people will probably have electricity in their garage or could get electricity to their driveway. So the next question is sort of like, well, how do you charge when you're not at home? And there are some medium speed stations that are sort of like that 20 mile, 30 mile per hour added speed. And then there are some DC fast charging stations that you can get much more range per minute from those stations. So again, and but that's really highly dependent on the car and the station. I use a great app called PlugShare. Yeah, I have that one too. I just downloaded it. Yeah, and on there you can sort of look at where the public stations are, how fast they can charge, and which ones are compatible with your car. And also a lot of the newer EVs have, as part of their, say, their navigation system, ways to navigate to the nearest fast charger that supports your vehicle. So it does take a little more planning, though, than just sort of, say, driving around and looking for a gas station. But, you know, I think once you get the hang of it, especially if you're taking the same long trip over and over, you sort of you get to figure out where the stations are, and it's not that confusing. Yeah, for us charging, we got a 220 plug set up, and we charge it at night. Our basic routine is... We come home, we plug it in, much like we plug in our phones and other devices, and it will be set up on a timer to charge during the nighttime hours. So that has very easily fit right in with our lifestyle of plugging in the car like any of our other devices. What would you say to our listeners that are still apprehensive about finding a charging station? Yeah, it's a Good question. I think right now it's 
it's not perfect, but there's a lot of there's a lot of investment that's going in right now and into charging in public charging infrastructure. And so that we know it's going to be better over the next uh, it's going to get better over the next few years. You do have to do a little bit more work than, than with refueling a gasoline car. I think that, you know, there are things that are changing over time that's going to make that easier over time. So the cars that are smart enough to route you to the, the charging stations and that match your car, that's certainly a, a big help. Some of the newer cars you can just plug in and it'll automatically know your payment information and, and that all is, is sorted out. And obviously, you know, we're investing a lot of money in charging stations. That's money that's coming from private industry, that's coming from the federal government, it's coming from state and local governments. And that's going to also expand the number of stations, which would be helpful because it's more options, more places that you can charge. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript, a full bio of our guest, and more resources, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. Want to make sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast? The easiest way to do that is to subscribe. It's free and easy. Just click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Now let's get back to our interview. So Colleen, what did you find most surprising about getting a new EV? What what stood out about switching from a gasoline car to an electric vehicle? Well, I, I have to say, hands down, I don't have all my car terminology right, but what surprised me was the pickup. It just, you know, when I stepped on the gas, it just started to go. And there wasn't any of that feeling of ramping up when you're when you step on a gas pedal. So I don't know, I don't know what the technical term for that is, but it felt really peppy. And I mean, the other thing that's amazing is that it's so quiet. But I mean, my hybrid was quiet, so I was already used to that. And the other thing that I thought was really cool were the different driving modes. I thought maybe you could get us up to speed on those because I, I'm not sure exactly yet what they do, but there's a regular drive mode and then something maybe like a regenerative braking and an eco mode. So maybe you can run through those. Most EVs do have different drive modes. I think almost all of them have some mode that replicates driving a gasoline car. So, and what I mean by that is that, you know, you press the accelerator, it goes. If you let off the accelerator, it coasts. And if you want to slow down, you, you press the brake. That's the way we all learned how to drive. But a lot of them do have modes where you can increase the amount of regenerative braking. And that's something that helps make sure that the car is most efficient as possible because there's two types of brakes on the EV. There's regenerative braking, which takes your momentum and converts it back into electricity and so recharges your battery. And then there's conventional friction braking, just like in a regular non-hybrid gasoline car, where you're just taking that momentum and turning it into heat through friction. And when you turn on those other modes, you can, in some of the vehicles, you can even turn them up to a one-pedal driving mode. So you press on the accelerator, it goes... If you let off the accelerator, it slows down and you can drive without even touching the brake. For my EV, that's actually the mode I like to drive it in. I've gotten really used to it and I think it's just easier to drive in that mode. Um, 
I can say my wife, she hates that and just wants it to drive like a regular car. And that's cool. You can put it in different modes for different drivers. Yeah, I like, I mean, in my my car, I think they call it e-pedal, but it's that same thing. You step on the gas, you go, as soon as you take your foot off the gas, it slows down pretty quickly. You don't ever have to really touch the brake. It will come to a full stop. I think it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is too. But, you know, I think that's, it's a, it's a little bit of a personal preference. And I'm also teaching my 16-year-old daughter to drive. And I think we're, we're starting in, in the basic gasoline car replica mode just to, to make it less confusing and so that she knows how to drive right. <laughs> um, other cars. So I have another question that I know, for, like for those of us that live in areas where winters are cold, snowy and icy, you know, how does an EV handle in cold weather? I am probably not the best person to ask about that. I live here in the Bay Area in California, and um, you know, so so winter weather is when I when I switch from shorts to, to jeans, <laughs> um, and pretty much the only ice my electric car encounters is in the in the cup holder. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, but all kidding aside, I mean, we we do know that EVs can be driven in, in cold climates. There's some negatives that the, the range does go down. There's some positives that you have a lower center of gravity with the EVs. And there are all-wheel drive EVs out there that are mechanically much simpler than a gasoline all-wheel drive system because it's usually two motors, one on the front and one on the back axle. So there are some advantages to the EV system in, in the cold weather. And I think it's interesting right now, the, the country that's gone the farthest in switching from gasoline vehicles to electric vehicles is Norway. Never visited, but I um, think it's a, they do get cold weather I occasionally. I know they do. I have been there and it does get cold. <laughs> I'll tell you my personal experience. We've had you know a big snowstorm here and driving it, I felt really secure on the road. That's just my personal experience driving. And it also seemed to heat up very quickly to you know get rid of the ice and snow on the outside of the car. The other car, you have to wait for the engine to heat up and for everything to warm up. And it seemed to be much quicker with the EV. Yeah. So the the advantage of the EV is that there's, you know, the heater can is an electric heater, so it'll be pretty instantaneous. It's also a one of the, I, I hesitate to call it a disadvantage, is one, one thing that, or an advantage, is one thing that the gasoline car has is that well, the gasoline car a lot of the energy of the of the gasoline goes into heat that we're trying to get rid of. And that's just, you know, that's how inefficient the gasoline engine is. And But for cold weather, you know, that's that waste heat is something we can use to heat the uh, the cabin. And in the electric car, it uh, it's, needs to come from the batteries. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, I, you know, I was thinking about why we want EVs. And of course, I wanted one for two reasons. It's a really smart technology it's it's an exciting technology. And of course, I want to reduce my carbon footprint. So how do you know you're reducing your carbon footprint when we look at the energy used to manufacture the car and the mining and processing of the metals for the battery and where our electricity is coming from when we charge? And then how do we dispose of the battery at the end of its life cycle? What So what can you tell us about global warming emissions like across the entire lifespan of the EV? Well, that's a question I've had, and it's a question that a lot of people have had. And, and so we've, at UCS, we've looked at that now for a number of years. And what we found is that there's savings in driving an electric vehicle versus driving a gasoline vehicle. 
in terms of carbon emissions everywhere in the U.S. When you look at manufacturing, there is higher carbon emissions from making an electric vehicle compared to a, a gasoline vehicle, and that's really due to making the battery. But what we found is that on average, you pay back that that initial deficit of emissions in about six six months to 18 months, depending on where you live and how clean your electricity is. So there is this increase in emissions due to manufacturing, but it's quickly offset by the savings that happen when you look at driving. Now, all those numbers are from a 2015 report we did. And I can't say that right now we're working on updating that. So pretty pretty soon I'll be able to tell you what the most up-to-date numbers are for comparing the emissions of electric vehicles and gasoline vehicles. Well, that's actually, that's really good news when you consider that you're going to have your car for probably, what, 10 years or more. You're definitely on the plus side in terms of not contributing to your carbon footprint. Right. Either you'll have the car for for that period of time or somebody else will. And so it's not going to come off the road probably for, on average, cars are on the road for about 12 uh, years right now. And so the net savings over the lifetime, if you look at compare gasoline and, and EVs, it's the EVs are a clear winner for reducing emissions. And then it's important to remember that that's what we're looking at right now. And you know, there's a lot we can do to clean up the manufacturing of vehicles, manufacturing of batteries. And so if we can make manufacturing the batteries cleaner, that'll also help reduce the total lifetime emissions. And so once we start getting a lot of these electric vehicles on the road, they'll be used EVs and eventually those EVs will come off the road and we can look at remanufacturing the batteries or recycling the materials from those batteries to reduce the amount of of material that a new material that's needed to make the batteries. And that should also reduce the emissions. But at the stage we're at right now, there's not going to be enough, you know, as the, as the number of EVs grows, you know, we won't be able to recycle, make batteries just with recycled material. But as the technology rolls out and, and we get more and more EVs out there, we should be able to get more and more of the materials from from recycled materials. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and answering some of these burning questions. I hope we've encouraged some folks to get out and test drive an EV. And I look forward to talking to you when your updated um, analysis comes out. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's always great to talk to you, Colleen. I don't know if you've noticed, but we spend a lot of time calling out Tyson Foods on this podcast. Before you cry foul, you should know it's the biggest meat and poultry company in the U.S. Tyson earned a net income of more than $3 billion in 2021 while exploiting workers, farmers, our environment, and consumers. We call Tyson out because we think that big food corporations should operate fairly, ethically, and sustainably, and that the largest companies shouldn't be exempt from the rules. Back in episode 117, we talked about how Tyson has gained near-monopoly status over the chicken industry in its home state of Arkansas, and the negative effects that's had on its farmers, its workers, and its neighbors. My colleague, Karen Perry-Stillerman, is ready with her slingshot to take aim once again at the giant and their latest bout of bad business. Thanks, Colleen. You've probably seen Tyson's red logo at the supermarket, but do you know what's really behind the brand and what it takes to get Tyson's products on the shelf? Here are a few facts. 
Fact one, Tyson Foods is massive. According to the company's website, it produces 20% of all the beef, pork, and chicken in the United States. In 2020, Tyson processed an estimated 6 million head of cattle, 22 million hogs, and nearly 2 billion chickens. That's billion with a B. Fact two, if you're going to kill billions of animals every year for meat, you need to feed them first. Those animals are mostly fed corn and soybeans, crops typically grown in ways that have negative impacts on our air, water, and farmland. And it takes a lot of farmland to grow enough corn and soy to feed Tyson. My colleague, Dr. Marcia Delange, an agricultural scientist, estimated just how much, and it's big, as in up to 10 million acres big. That's about twice the size of New Jersey. And while Tyson has pledged sustainability on the land it effectively controls, it hasn't lived up to that pledge. Here's an opinion between facts. Tyson's size and power comes with an equally large opportunity and a responsibility to be a good steward of the land and the health of the communities it operates in. Which brings me to fact three. Tyson does not act as though it cares much about this responsibility. Multiple states have sued Tyson in recent years for spills or improper discharge of animal waste or other pollutants. A 2016 study named Tyson the second biggest polluter of U.S. waterways from 2010 to 2014, as it dumped more than 104 million pounds of pollutants into waterways during that period. Gross. But what's also gross is how Tyson executives have failed, time and again, to really clean up their operations. In some cases, they've refused to take even the smallest steps toward more sustainable practices. At the company's annual meeting in February, a group of shareholders asked Tyson to study ways to reduce its use of plastic packaging. That very modest proposal was shot down, despite 59% of the company's independent shareholders supporting it. How does that happen? Well, at Tyson Foods, only literal Tyson's votes matter. The founders' descendants have a lock on shareholder voting through a system known as dual-class stock structure, in which Tyson issues two different classes of shares, one having more voting power and earning better dividends than the other. Members of the Tyson family own the better shares, so nothing happens without their approval. And speaking of the family, John R. Tyson, the founder's great-grandson, earned $13.7 million last fiscal year as chief sustainability officer. I wonder how much they'll pay him to not take sustainability seriously this year. How can one family and company have so much power and face so few consequences? It's a long story, but at its heart is deregulation. The good news is the Biden administration can loosen the chokehold giant conglomerates like Tyson have over our food system, and you can help. Go to act.ucsusa.org slash rain dash in dash big dash chicken. There you can send a message urging the agriculture and justice departments to break the abusive power of companies like Tyson Foods. With enough of us standing up, we can force Tyson to change its ways. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, 
The 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to defend science and help us solve the planet's most pressing problems. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. David Reichmuth. Our Tyson Food segment was brought to you by Karen Perry Stillerman. Editing by Colleen MacDonald. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Kana Tagawa. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you like the podcast, here are a couple of ways you can help us. First, you can subscribe. It's free and easy. Just click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Another way to help is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with us, check us out on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and see you next time.